Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 16 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 20th of May. And Leon, we're talking to Kai Ingo Grieve. That's right. Kai Ingo Grieve, he's the CEO of Jedox, which is a multinational. It's actually a, a German business intelligence company, and it has some major clients here in Australia, and we're going to have a great chat with him. And after that, we're going to have a chat with Sinclair Davidson, RMIT economist, and he's going to have some views about the government's changes to superannuation in its budget. Yeah, and fairly firm views they are too. That's right. But first of all, let's have a chat with Kai Ingo Grieve. Kai, what are the main challenges now for businesses with analytics? To clearly position themselves and, um, and ensure that uh, you know the analytics space is very broad and um, customers have a huge variety but it's uh, not very clear to them you know what are the different vendors offering so a very proper positioning in that space is, is critical and um, to differentiate uh, itself from each other from uh, ensuring that you are very clear with a solution proposal on the table uh, but there is so much data around. I mean, how do they get to that stage? How do they leverage from that data? Oh, that's a technology, uh, I would say, answer. They, first of all, companies have a lot of data, so they need to understand which questions do they want answered, right, and what data is available. Um, the technology needs to enable access to that data so you can really surface it and connect it with different data sources to provide the, I would say, answers to the questions which companies have. For example, where do I have the largest churn rate with my customers? Uh, where do I have cross and upsell opportunities? How is the industry around me uh, evolving or uh, competitors around me as an enterprise evolving? And all of that data is either available inside the organization or outside the organization in different, I would say, partly uh, free um, resourcing so that you can get uh, you know, data within your country of different, different companies um, which compare to you so you can have a good comparison. So it's really about which questions you want answered. So, they really, so companies really need to know what questions they need to ask in that case when, they, when they're dealing with data. Exactly. That's, that's the core, I think. You know, what, what questions do I have? What services do I need to provide to customers? Um, what processes do I need to improve? Uh, how do I differentiate um, you know, in competition? And um, asking the right questions uh, is, is then leading to, okay, what data points do I really need? So, and are they available? And who has them? So tell us about the scope and the work of Jedox. So Jedox is a, a company which is quite established. We're a company which is uh, in the market since 2002. And um, we you know, started with the mission of making the most used um, business intelligence tool the most useful, meaning Excel. So a lot of data is available in spreadsheets, and, um, and that data is um, hard to connect. So what we provide is a business intelligence platform which enables organizations to, first of all, incorporate all the data sources into one central, I would say, repository and um, analyze uh, and get insights of that data. 
And um, but there's one differentiator we have um, for customers. Um, so if once you have the insight, once you have done the analytics, you want to plan and you want to look into the future and plan the future. So our technology is not just capable to, I would say, surface the uh, information and the insights, but also to write back, so to comment and to create new data with planning, budgeting uh, solutions and uh, forecasting solutions. So we look at data which is there and we plan uh, into the future with that data. So really, GEDOX is about uh, planning for the future. It helps companies do with their forecasting, etc. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, the the main, the most use cases we have, the majority of them are not just in analytics and reporting, but also um, and primarily helping companies to leverage that information to do planning, budgeting, and forecasting. Exactly. So, I mean, Jedox. So, I mean, Jedox started in Freiburg in Germany. You're based. You you have operations all over the world, including Australia. Where else are you based? So we are um, we uh, acquired Naked Data, which is one long-standing partner here in Australia. Um, last year, we immediately after that acquisition opened up an office in Singapore. Um, we opened up an office last year in Boston, so that we can support our customers, which are also in Europe, uh, but have operations around the world now in all time zones. So we're capable to support them. Um, across the you know, in the fall of the sun approach, we have um, subsidiaries in in France. We have staff in UK and in Germany. We are in, uh, in three locations, and we have uh, you know a huge partner ecosystem around the world, which is nearly you know in every country um, where, where we have opportunities. And uh, which sectors would uh, your clients come from? Oh, it's very broad. Um, I think the the major the majority of our com- um, customers are starting with implementing Jedox mainly in in the finance area. So, um, you know, most companies um, are really starting their budgeting processes within finance, doing analytics and finance, costing solutions, etc. But we're now expanding also into different planning scenarios and marketing, procurement planning, HR planning. So everything which an organization needs to do to get planning done properly. We're quite industry averse. Um, We have, you know, based on our history in Germany, we're definitely pretty strong in manufacturing and retail. But we also have, you know, large legal customers, insurances, financial services companies. Um, so it's it's a very broad variety of different verticals um, which we're serving, either, either direct or majority also through specific solutions which our partners offer. Now, one of the most fascinating things Jedox has done is your work with Excel, and you've actually made Excel much more user-friendly. Tell us about that. So what we're doing is, um, you know, we are more or less uh, helping the customers or the users to use the tools they want. And Excel is one of the most used tools for analytics in the world. Um, There's been a lot of, I would say, trends or, you know, notions in the past years to eliminate Excel because it has a lot of downsides as well as it has upsides. So we are enabling now the Excel users to... um, to get access to one source of the truth. So we um, leverage uh, the Excel power 
but we eliminate some of the downsides, which is like, you know, um, errors which you have in cells which you can't identify. So with that central OLAP uh, engine which we have, which is an in-memory database, we aggregate all the information in the organizations and we publish it into Excel so that the controller can really model and uh, use the data but writes it back into a central repository. And because it's in a central repository, it means that no, it means that everyone has access to it. Is that right? It, yeah, it's a user. You, you can um, uh, de- define user rights so everybody can have access to it, but that's what the different organizations define. Some sensitive HR data, you don't want anybody in the, everybody in the organization to have access to it. So you can limit the access rights, but um, you can definitely take advantage across the whole organization. How important is the cloud now to business analytics? Oh, very important. A lot of data is generated in the cloud, in cloud services like, you know, for example, Google Analytics data, which is, um, you know, collecting a lot of data every day around the world. Twitter, streams, etc. So cloud is is very important data source. It's generally unstructured data, so it lives in a data lake, which um, we can now have access to through our um, tools. We have connectors to the different cloud sources. Um, but cloud is becoming more important, not just as a source of the data, but also as a enabler for organizations to be more flexible and agile and grow, you know, as they want to grow. So they don't have to really um, have all the hardware assigned and resources assigned internally. Line of businesses can now make a decision to quickly move to the cloud, have external companies manage that for them, and can gradually grow with, with the demand they have. So we think cloud is a very important um, area. The finance area is still reserved because it's a lot of, I would say, very sensitive data, but we're making sure with um, certifications and working with the right partners like um, Amazon or Azure that we really supply the right, um, I would say, security policies and security for, for customers so that they can feel confident with that. And uh, they can have private cloud or they can have uh, public cloud, is that right? Yes, yes. We offer more or less three options. Um, we we are not um, cloud only. So if a customer decides, I don't want to use a JEDOC solution into the cloud or in the public cloud, they can do it on premises um, within uh, their own premises. So they uh, can have a perpetual license model and, and use it on premise, but they can go into the public cloud and to the, into the private cloud. Um, so we help customers to make that transition as they want to do it so they don't have to make an immediate decision of saying, I'll move all my data into the cloud. Now, final question. I mean, you, your field is quite crowded. There are many players in there. How do you distinguish JEDOX from your competitors? Um, so I, I would say, um, first of all, we are part of the very crowded business intelligence space, but we're not data discovery, so we're not just analytics, we're analytics reporting and planning, so that's the one thing, so we look forward, that's one big distinction. Within the area of um, what is called corporate performance management, CPM, we're distinguishing ourselves very clearly from, I would say, the historical mega-suite vendors by 
really a rapid um, prototyping, rapid deployment approach. So we go in very lean with a very quick result for customers so that they see immediate productivity with their solutions so they can gradually grow within the organization. That is one differentiator. And we're definitely differentiating ourselves from the cloud-only vendors by offering a migration pass for our customers into the future without having to now make a hard decision of where this uh, is the access to the financial data. Um, so this is our key distinction, and um, I think that uh, one other area where we are very strong, where we're putting a lot of innovation and, and development efforts into, is what we call the GPU acceleration. So when customers have to process very, very large data streams, this is quite um, intense with regards to memory. So uh, Intel processors normally only support eight parallel processors. We use the NVIDIA cards and have really adjusted our engine based on that to have 2,000 parallel processes at the same time, which allows massive data throughput opportunities. So we're very well prepared for the big data scenarios. Kai and Go Group, thank you very much for your time. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you go. Leon, what do you think about that? Like? Well, I think every business needs some kind of business intelligence, but the key is small to medium-sized businesses. How do they deal with it? Yeah, that's right. It's partly a matter of cost, partly a matter of just how big they are and what they're doing. Well, there's lots of vendors out there selling stuff, so, uh, you know, there's all sorts of opportunities. Yes, indeed, that's true. And uh, opportunities in uh, superannuation as well? That's right. Let's have a chat with Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, the the uh, government has introduced radical changes to superannuation in its budget and it's causing the government some grief. There's been some backlash about it. What's your view? I think that the superannuation changes which came in were extremely radical and completely unexpected by the electorate and the words retrospective tax grab are not normally associated with a, a policy that's been well accepted by the community. So I think the the, 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 the policy was poorly chosen, poorly timed, poorly designed and uh, unsurprisingly a lot of people in the community are, are intensely dissatisfied with uh, uh, what came out of the budget. How is it poorly designed? Well, the the problem that we have with superannuation is that it, it is a relatively new policy. I mean, people think, you know, it's been around since 1992. It's an old policy. But superannuation has actually got a 40-year rollout. Until we've had an entire generation of people having worked with superannuation, there's always going to be the problem of people who have worked for a long time but don't have enough money in super. So the whole idea was that when they brought super in, you could put more in, you could top up, you could voluntarily say, more in order to provide for your, your retirement. What the government are now doing is halfway through the rollout period is that they've put a cap on that. And so there are still people who have never really saved enough who are now struggling to put money into super. Now, what they've done is they've put a lifetime cap of $1.6 million. They've put an after-tax contributions cap of $500,000, and they've put in an annual cap of $25,000. Now, you need one of those three things, not all three of them. So if they had simply said you can accumulate a maximum amount, now I think 1.6 is too little, but it doesn't matter. If they had said you can accumulate a maximum amount of money in super, 
that will be tax advantage and everything else you've got to pay tax on. I think they could have gotten away with that. But it's the combination of the $1.6 million, the $500,000 after-tax contributions, and the $25,000 contributions that is probably complete overkill and that is the poor design element of the of the uh, um, policy, in addition to which the retrospectivity on the $500,000, I, I think that's a big mistake. And, and that is certainly the one that, that, that's causing the most angst in the community. The government would argue that, hang on, this is only affecting the top 4% of superannuants. It's not affecting the broad population. So from the government's perspective, it might not be that big a political price to pay. The difficulty with that argument, and, and they have been making that argument, the, the, the difficulty with that argument is probably threefold. One is that we shouldn't judge policy on whether or not it only whacks a small proportion of the population. I mean, we, we, we don't have policies in other areas where we target minorities. Um, that's kind of considered to be like poor form. The second problem that they have is that it's it might only affect the top 4% now, but these policies have a habit of creeping up on us and creeping into the general population. So what's going to happen is, oh, sorry, before I get to that, so the third point, of course, is that 4% are very often coalition voters. So they're actually whacking their own voters in a way straight into the hip pocket, which is going to annoy them uh, uh, intensely. But let me go back to the, uh, um, the, the regime uncertainty the aspect of it, which is probably one of the bigger issues from a from a policy perspective, is that right now, if you have accumulated more than one point six million dollars in your in your super fund over your life, there are, you've got to quarantine that one point six million dollars, which goes forward tax free, and you put the remainder of it into an accumulation fund, which will be taxed at fifteen percent. Now, right now, that that accumulation fund has been taxed at the concessional rate, which for super is fifteen percent, but there's no reason why it shouldn't be taxed at thirty percent, or why it shouldn't be taxed at your marginal tax rate. So in actual fact, the government have now brought in a situation where your super is segmented into the tax concession super and the non-tax concession super. The non-tax concession super at the moment still attracts a concessionary tax rate, but there's no logical reason why that should remain the case. As a matter of fact, uh, it shouldn't. Um, I would be arguing in that particular situation that your non-super investment should be taxed at your marginal tax rate the same as everything else is. So uh, a treasurer, a future treasurer is going to find that argument very seductive. So I think we will find that other bit starting to be taxed at much higher rates in the future, and and that is the regime uncertainty. Is up until the budget two, three weeks ago, it was always a theoretical possibility that government would engage in a massive tax grab. Well, that theoretical possibility has actually now turned into an actual occurrence. And so I think uh, public perceptions around um, how safe your super is have been uh, um, broken and have changed. And I think we will see a lot more cynicism around uh, uh, superannuation as a policy going forward. Can this affect other parts of the population beyond the four percent? Absolutely. Um, there was an article yesterday in the uh, in the Age about people getting divorced and breaking up supers. How that's going to affect them? Um, it will almost certainly affect um, academics um, who are on uh, a very generous superannuation schemes that are. They are in principle defined benefit schemes, but there are some variations that make them not quite defined benefit schemes, whereby um, 
academics, for example, would be paying over 20% of their income into uh, these defined benefit schemes. And if you've worked as an academic for 14 years, just the way the formula operates, you are going to be over $1.6 million of money in super. So the logic has always been you have a slightly lower salary of your working life, but you have a slightly higher super at the end of it all. Now, the government announced when they brought in the budget that um, – uh, commensurate changes will be made to people with defined benefit schemes to bring them in line with this. But that actually hasn't been specified what that actually is. So a lot of people who are, are not, say, uh, government employees per se, but are in the, the, the not-for-profit or in the, the, the public sector um, – and who are not rich per se will also be dragged into this in a way which at the moment is unknown. Um, that will be explained at a later date. So that's going to cause excitement too. So th- there are a lot of people who might not think they've been affected by this, but who are going to be affected by this. And of course, uh, they will discover they are affected by this after the election. You have described this as the government's mining tax moment. I have indeed. The, the mining tax in 2010 was um, recommended by the Henry review, which the government a week before, or sorry, two weeks before the budget, said that they would adopt a policy like this that would be discussed by the community. And then the very next week in the budget, they actually unleashed it with uh, um, costings and expected revenue and everything into the budget. And the mining industry expecting to be consulted was completely caught unawares. Um, I think with the superannuation industry, they're even more unawares because nobody saw this coming. Now, um, We've been talking about super for, for a long, long time, um, but this particular policy I would have thought would have required a lot of discussion, a lot of policy work, a lot of development, a lot of community consultation. Remember, everybody with a job has got super. So there are, what, 8 million people in Australia who are employees into a super, and you can't bring in a policy like this and say to those 8 million, oh, by the way, don't worry, we're only whacking 150,000 people, um, because when you Violate trust. Um, there's no reason why anybody should trust you. So um, the you know long-term investments like superannuation require a stable institutional environment, and they require public confidence. And I think that stable institutional environment has been undermined, and public confidence has been undermined. Uh, in contrast to the way, say, the way the Howard government introduced uh, the goods and services tax, because uh, people have been discussing goods and services tax for years and years and years, so people were apprised of it. Yes, and when the the goods and services tax came in, I, I think we'd had about 20 years of discussion. We'd already fought one general election over the issue. Mr. Howard announced that there would be a GST and then spent a year discussing it and then went to a general election, after which we spent probably another other year discussing it before the legislation came in and then there was tinkering afterwards. Now, I think compared to the GST, which the, the, the Liberals always said was a difficult reform to actually bring in and bed down, this is an horrendously complicated a change to the superannuation system. Um, especially if you think back that um, the $500,000 lifetime cap on after-tax contributions is backdated to 2007. Now, people don't are not required to keep records records back to 2007. You're only required to keep records for five years. So you have to rely on the tax office telling you how much money you've put into your super, which I think is also a bit dubious. And if you look at the timing of it very carefully, cleverly, cleverly,
Kimberley, they're more or less trying to undo the 2006 Howard government uh, um, superannuation reforms, which at the time I said were, were probably overly generous and fragile, but I never actually ever expected that an Australian government would retrospectively try to change them. I always anticipated they would grandfather people in and move forward. So that aspect of the retrospectivity going back to 2007 is also causing a, a lot of upset and angst amongst, at the moment, the 4%. Um, but we're very soon will be affecting a lot more people, I anticipate. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Soup is one of the biggest problems we've got in, in some ways, isn't it? That's right, but it's become a real political problem, Gary, and there's a new Morgan poll showing that it will affect one in three coalition voters, they might change their vote because of that decision on super. I think some people might be thinking, um, let's go back to the beginning and start this election all over again. Anyway, now the news. Well, Gary, for a start, the Chinese government's giant financial stimulus package earlier this year has had next to no impact. The Chinese economy has shifted into slower growth in April with investment factory output and retail sales growing less than expected, adding to our doubts as to whether the world's second largest economy was picking up at all. Industrial production climbed 6% in April. That's down from 6.8% recorded in March. Well down on economists' forecasts of 6.5%. Retail sales slowed to 10.1%. That's down on the 10.5% in March and missing analyst forecasts. Fixed asset investment growth came in at 10.5% year-on-year in January to April period, the slowest pace since two. 2012 and missing market expectations of 10.9%. And it was also down from the first quarter's growth rate of 10.7%. Now, these disappointing figures follow positive March data, which had everyone thinking that China's economy was recovering after more than a year of fiscal, monetary and administrative stimulus messages, message, measures from the Chinese government. The issue is that the Chinese economy is now at a 25-year low, Gary, and there's weak demand at home and abroad, factory overcapacity and increasing amounts of debt putting the great brakes on growth yeah and the debt of course is enormous even even the debt we know about let alone the shadow banking debt that's right that's right so it's a huge issue and china is a space to watch now interesting news coming out of the minutes from the reserve bank of australia meeting a few weeks ago where they cut the interest rates they'd actually contemplating leaving official interest rates on hold but in the end they decided to cut because of the weakening inflation and the rba board meetings uh meeting minutes from two weeks ago show the rba RBA was surprised that inflation was weaker forecasts, and the minutes noted broad-based softness in price and labour signalled less momentum in domestic inflationary pressures than had previously been expected. And these minutes show the RBA discussed leaving rates untouched until they had more evidence, and the balance of evidence, however, suggested they had to cut. Now, the RBA's first interest cut in a year has sparked market speculation of another rate cut in June, but analysts reckon the RBA might wait until the next CPI report, which is due in July 27. And most economists, polled by Bloomberg, anticipate another 25 basis point rate cut at the board's August meeting. One has to say or wonder whether it'll do any good anyway. The other significant thing for the Australian economy is the benchmark 10-year Australian government bond yield has crashed to its lowest level in 141 years on expectations that more cuts to official interest rates are coming. Investors relying on revenue from bonds and other fixed income investments, these are self-funded retirees, managers of long-term liabilities such as insurance companies and annuity providers, they're the biggest losers. And Australia's 10-year bond is the latest to enter unprecedented territory that follows similar record lows in Germany and Japan two months 
months ago. And the reality is we've had surging demand for bonds around the world's being driven by a global reevaluation of expectations about the US Federal Reserve rate hikes and a sign of deflation in Europe and Japan. And at the same time, cheap credit has cushioned the burgeoning debt of many advanced economies. And the trend is set to continue in Australia, where the Reserve Bank has been forced to cut the official cash rate to a record low of 1.75% to maintain downward pressure on the currency. And since the last board meeting two weeks ago, the dollar has fallen almost 5% to about 72 US cents. And uh, this this move in bonds puts Australia closer to developed market peers grappling for years with falling consumer producer prices and in some cases negative real yields on government securities. And this is a huge issue. It's all new territory for Australia, Gary. Wages growth has uh, hit a fresh record low. Workers' pay has rose just 0.4% last quarter and 2.1% over the last year. And according to the ABS, the latest seasonally adjusted wage price index is growing at the lowest level since the data began in the September quarter of 1998. So in real terms, we've got wages actually dropping. Well, this is actually quite significant, Gary, because it means less inflation and that will actually tell us whether the Reserve Bank will cut interest rates again. Yeah. yeah. That's where it's important. Now, to corporate profits, an Australian rural services company, Elders, has had a big turnaround. It's reported a 55% jump in profits for the half year as part of its turnaround strategy following a period of losses. And Elders has reported statutory net profit rising to $24.6 million. That's well up on the $15.9 million in the previous corresponding period, and that's driven in part by higher cattle prices. In the 12 months through to March, Ausforex's net profit fell 10% to $21.8 million. Drilling services firm Bought Longyear narrowed its first quarter loss to US $61 million. That's about $83.6 million Aussie from US $71 million a year ago. Dulux Group reported a 3.7% rise in interim profit to $63.7 million, underpinned by its paints and coatings business, and I think also helped by the housing housing industry. Agribusiness Rural Co. booked a record first half profit of $10.8 million. That's up 3.2% from a year ago. Financial services firm IWF says full-year profit will be flat because second-half revenue has been hit by equity market devaluations. Of course, IWF, which last year admitted to suffering reputation damage because of alleged misconduct in its research division, says underlying post-tax profit will be between $773 million and $176 compared to $173.8 million a year ago. Now, Coles is launching a new milk brand to support struggling dairy farmers in Victoria and New South Wales and is delivering an extra 20 cents per litre of milk sold in independent dairy industry funds. And Coles will contribute $1 million to help establish a dairy industry fund to administer the project. And the investment will come out of the $50 million uh, Coles Nurture Fund, which a supermarket set up last year to support innovation and capital projects by small producers. And Coles, which won't make any profit on the new brand, expects it will be on the supermarket shelves in three months. And at the same time, the Victorian government has set up a task force to find ways to support struggling dairy suppliers. But farmers, Gary, are really dubious because Coles started the milk wars years ago when it slashed the price of private label milk to $1 and it's still making money on it. Yes, indeed it is. And of course, it's a big come on for buying other stuff when you go to the supermarket. That's right. That's right. And now the um, potato marketers are in trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> not, not making a dollar on spuds. No, no, they're not. No, they're not. Now, angry investors are suing Australia's largest milk process 
Francis of the Murray Welburn for allegedly misleading him into the lead-up to the company's float, and the class action filed in the Supreme Court of Victoria claims board members were aware the company was failing to meet its targets months before it informed the market, and class action specialist lawyer Mark Elliott has launched the action on behalf of unit holders in the MG Unit Trust, and he alleges the company was aware it didn't have reasonable grounds for making the misleading product disclosure statement representations. And the lawsuit alleges Murray Goldburn new sales forecasts in the PDS were unlikely to be achieved on the same day that the PDS was filed. And as a result, it's making the claim that the entire board is liable to pay compensation. Now, failure to disclose problems with its forecast when it listed on the ASX on July 3rd, 2015, and again, when it reaffirmed its guidance on October the 26th of the company's annual general meeting, actually breached the Corporations Act. And Murray Goldburn downgraded its forecast in February, and again in uh, February 26th, and again on February 27th. It had forecast a net profit of $89 million, and according to its latest update, the company is looking at a net profit of $39 million to $42 million for 2016 financial year. And MG Unit Trust shares have actually been hammered by investors. They've plunged more than 60% since the start of this year, and that included a 40%, 42% slump from $2.14 to $1.24 on the day of the second downgrade. Problem, eh? I think they're in serious trouble. Serious strife. Yeah. Quite apart from the milk glut. Quite apart from that, I think they're in huge, huge trouble. Now, penalty rates, Gary, has emerged as an election issue, and the Labor Party has been wedged by the Greens, pledging to enshrine existing Saturday and Sunday penalty rates for thousands of retail and hospitality workers in doing it in legislation. And in a move clearly aimed at targeting Labor's policy areas and wedge the ALP, Greens MP Adam Bant announced a policy in the New South Wales Labor seat of Grandler, where Greens MP, where the Greens is challenging Labor heavyweight Anthony L. Albanese and uh, Labor opposes reducing Sunday penalty rates, but it's also waiting on a decision from the Fair Work Condition to be handed out before the election on July the 2nd. And opposition leader Bill Shorten says he'll accept the Commission's decision. He's ruled out legislation protecting Sunday penalty rates and he's warned the Greens their position is risky because if you leave that in the hands of the government, they can do anything. True, and probably will. But what's interesting, Gary, is the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union and the Electoral Trades Union has rounded on Shorten over penalty rates and they demanded they be protected by any means necessary and they're backing the Greens to enshrine the overtime rates in law. Yeah, all of which probably means that more cafes and small businesses will go out of business. Now, in a bid to win back rural voters, the federal government has shelved its controversial backpackers tax, but rural groups and politicians reckons it fails to end the uncertainty the impulse has created for tourism and farmers and they're telling the government to scrap it. Now, Assistant Treasurer Kelly O'Dwyer said the tax of 32.5 cents in every dollar earned by seasonal foreign foreign workers wouldn't start until July the 1st as scheduled and instead would be delayed until January the 1st, 2017. When it would come into force, it would take a different form. But that's a problem for everyone because that's coming into force right during the picking season. That's right, yes. <laughs> so Can, the, Doesn't Canberra understand no, the seasons? No, it doesn't. And the tax introduced by former Treasurer Joe Hockey was forecast to raise $540 million during its first three years. Now, that delay is going to cost the budget $40 million. And uh, the tax is anchored farm, tourism and hospitality groups who rely on seasonal labour. You can't get Aussies to do that sort of work. No, 
And you need the backpackers. That's right. And rural Liberal MPs and Nationals have told the government to scrap it completely. And opinion polls show it's going to be a tight election race. And angers, there's a lot of anger over the tax targeting backpackers who currently only pay tax on earnings above $18,200. So the government shelved the tax. But everyone's saying that doesn't go far enough because it's going to reappear during the harvest season when it's needed the most. Real problem, isn't it? I think it is. You know, here we are depending on agribusiness and, uh, and people are trying to mess about with the pay rates there. It's just another example of this government's inept campaign. Knee-jerk all the time. Really, really bad. Better planning would be helpful. Yeah. Now, and that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we have a great interview with uh, British entrepreneur Tom Cridland, all about sustainable clothing. Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. Who wants a pair of trousers to last 30 years? That's right. And uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.